When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Justin Bankston to continue We Love Rock Docs with a look at the documentary Hype, which tells the tale of grunge from its start as a very local, very underground scene in Seattle to its end as an overexposed international phenomenon and the human cost of that trajectory. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and tonight I'm joined once again by Justin Bankston to continue our series, We Love Rock Docs, with a look at the 1996 film by Doug Prey called Hype! Exclamation point. Justin, welcome. Welcome. Here we are, back in our youth again. Indeed, indeed. I'm feeling 30 years younger. I don't know about you, but <laughs> it's 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 a hard journey. This This film came out in 96... And it hit pretty hard. Grunge had collapsed after the death of Kurt Cobain in 1994. And this movie really just laid it all out. What happened, how the scene arose, how it got big, how it got ridiculously big, how it got exploited, the backlash, the tragedy, and the fallout. Did I sum it up well or what? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty good. And it's pretty amazing that it tells you a little something about how big this whole deal was that like a movie about it that is really thorough and covers all the bases and doesn't need to be restated in any way came out in 1996. Yeah. I mean, boom, bada boom. I mean, the tale was done. It was over. Our youth was wasted. (laughs) 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 The enemies of freedom and revolution had declared victory and uh, put a stake through its heart. I mean, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but not that much of one. And they didn't even get into all the sad stuff. There were some glimpses of some people here that, you know, seeing me as a part of the gets and Lane Staley of Alice in Chains at the end of the movie, and they didn't say anything and Lane Sandy hadn't died by that point. And, um, you know, and they didn't say anything about what had happened to Mia, which she was also, she was raped and murdered in 1993, late 93, early 94. Um, but yeah, that hit me really hard this time. Just, just seeing them looking so young and beautiful and vibrant and then knowing the fate that awaited them. But let's talk about Seattle and how uh, it got exciting there for a minute. Like the movie starts out, Sets the scene pretty well. Um, introduce some of the characters that are going to be 
talking to us. It's not really a talking heads movie because they do a good job of putting these people into settings. Like they've got Charles Peterson, the photographer who took all of the iconic grunge photos for the sub pop album covers. Um, They've got him in a room full of photos on the ground. They've got Art Chantry, the graphic designer. He's sitting there at a, um, what do they call those things that chop paper up? A paper chopper upper. A a paper chopper upper. It's there's a cutting board. Yeah. A a cutting board. And he's, he's slicing up what were at the time valuable um, grunge, historic grunge posters Et cetera, et cetera. They've got Jack and Dino, the producer, uh, in a studio. So I thought they did a good job of, of kind of mixing that up. But they get all these people. They set the background. They get some bands, the Mono Men, the Fastbacks, and others talking about Seattle. And, and you know, I've been through this story on the show multiple times. It's Seattle. It's isolated. It's rainy. It's dreary. Big rock tradition, Jimi Hendrix, the Sonics, the Kingsman, Louie Louie, etc. There's also a big yuppie influx in the 80s. And this is something that's easy to forget. But like, you know, in the 80s, after Boeing kind of scaled back, and there's the same recession everybody else had in the early 80s, then Microsoft comes to town, Starbucks explodes out of the city, Northern Exposure and Twin Peaks feature the Pacific Northwest. So there's this kind of hip factor and yuppie cachet to the town that's contrasted with the life of the kids that have grown up there and are your typical alienated punk rock type kids. Yeah. And it's, it's really like Seattle is such a fascinating place. And, you know, I think that is there, that there's a huge inflection point when Seattle turns from, of a truly working class port city with, you know, even if you were working out at Boeing and you were an engineer, you were building something physical and it was very much an elbow grease type of place. And then Microsoft comes in in the eighties and that really everything changes. Uh, and it becomes much more, uh, everything about Seattle becomes much more sort of theoretical, you know, as far as what gets put out into the world. Yeah, people stop working with their hands, start working with their keyboards, and, you know, the town changes. And then they they start talking about a theme that they really emphasize throughout this, that the famous Seattle scene, music scene, started out as just kids playing music because they liked to play for an audience of their friends and other bands. And they emphasize that over and over again. They've got people like um, Kim Thale of Soundgarden and others talking about how, you know, when they played their first gigs, there were only two clubs in the town that would let people play original music. And, you know, Soundgarden's first few years of shows were to a couple dozen people who are all in other bands, Um, bands like the Melvins, Green River, Malfunction, the U-Men. And those are the bands that kind of, later were flagged as grunge. I mean, there was a compilation on CZ Records, um, the Deep Deep Six compilation that came out, I think, in 86, but really didn't become hot shit until like 88 or 89. Once Sub Pop and the Single of the Month Club started out, that um, Deep Six compilation suddenly became this sort of holy grail thing and codified this notion of a scene with a sound and a defined vibe to it. But there was also a complimentary scene. There was lots of little scenes as people throughout the movie talk, but there was kind of a complimentary scene going on at the same time that was um, more sort of 
indie pop, like the Fastbacks, the Posies, the Young Fresh Fellows. And the Young Fresh Fellows are actually the first band to kind of break out of sub pop. And I mean, not sub pop, of Seattle. And before sub pop, there were several labels in town. CZ that I mentioned, um, there was Estrus, there was Pop Llama, and there was K Records in uh, Olympia, the state capital of Washington. And that's something else that people kind of emphasize is that this was more than just Seattle. That This was originally sort of a greater Pacific Northwest scene that went you know, as far south as Portland and included Olympia, up to Bellingham, et cetera, et cetera. Were you, when did you first become hip that there was uh, things shaken in Seattle? Well, I wasn't hip at all until, I, I didn't move to Austin until 1991. So growing up in the Rio Grande Valley, I was like desperately unhip. Uh, right through the 80s into the early 90s. And so, like, Nirvana had already hit before I knew anything about underground rock or, uh, you know, I started reading the indie rock magazines and all that stuff. So this was kind of like ground zero for me. Good to know. Yeah, I was um, my probably second year of college. And oddly enough, it was friends in Lubbock who – there was a cool record store in Lubbock and they were way into what was coming out of sub pop in 88, 89. I remember distinctly that sound exchange did not have the Nirvana album, but my friends in Lubbock had it um, weeks before Austin did. So um, and kind of a weird scene, but they talk about that. They talk about how the, the scene was coalescing and um, it was kind of getting a big vibe as an indie scene, which is different than what it became. And they talk about like, you know, there've been Steve Fisk, the record producer has a, a great bit where he talks about how, you know, the major labels are like this sort of baby Yui, which is this giant idiot character in a com in the Harvey comic book. That's, you know, like this 300 pound baby duck who doesn't know how tough and, and fearsome he is. And baby Yui would like hear that there was a scene happening someplace like Athens, Georgia, the home of REM and the B-52s and Pylon and, and a whole bunch of other bands. And they would wander over there. They'd buy a bunch of people lunches, accidentally sit down and squash three bands a career. Then they would hear that the scene's happening in Minneapolis. And so they'd waddle over there, you know, accidentally crush the replacements, kill who's going to do, um, et cetera, et cetera. So Seattle had become kind of the latest of these cities with an underground rock scene like Athens, like Minneapolis. Austin was sort of in that sweepstakes for a bit with the new sincerity movement and Daniel Johnson and the MTV special in 85. And, you know, Hoboken had a scene and of course, New York and LA had scenes. Um, and Seattle starts getting this rep for this particular brand of, of slow, heavy, grungy uh, underground rock. And then they introduced sub pop and Sub Pop was very much in the tradition of record labels like Discord out of D.C. or SST out of Orange County or Huntington Beach. I forget what county that's in, but in Southern California. Um, and, you know, these regional labels that would sort of document the scenes that were happening in their town. The difference was Sub Pop, Bruce Pavitt and Jonathan Poman were as they say, students of pop culture history who really admired Motown records and they wanted to be successful. They wanted bands to be successful. They were committed to success. Unlike the other labels, they didn't have day jobs. They quit their day job and went to work at this full time. And they were genius hype artists. And one of their genius moves was flying Everett True 
over from England to Seattle to check out the sub pop label and the scene and bands like Tad and Mudhoney and Nirvana and just got this glowing article. I can't remember if it was a melody maker or musical express, but just true, like fell for it slash got it. And spread this tale of these lumberjacks with chainsaws and flannel shirts making this ferocious kind of killer rock coming out of Seattle. And that absolutely leapfrogged the American press because people who write for places like the Village Voice or, you know, whatever the papers are in Los Angeles and the Austin Chronicle would read papers like the NME and the Melody Maker and listen to what they said. It was this validation from outside. And suddenly Sub Pop was the hottest underground label in the country and Seattle was the hot scene. And this is two years before Nirvana even hit. I mean, that's that's one thing that they kind of get to in this movie, that there was an underground scene that was that broke nationally and internationally long before Nirvana um exploded in, in the big way and it's easy to forget that as history gets telescoped yeah and it's i like i think it's great that these guys like to put themselves over as like these total like flim flam artists and and hucksters and uh masters of hype and they are all of that but you can't you can only go so far with that and there's a there's this backbone of hard work that they put into their label. This the single of the month club doesn't happen without you putting out the fucking single every month. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, the, the, it's, and, and the, the focus they had on the way they looked and using the same artists and the same photographers. So they, they put in all this work to create this actual product. That's really excellent. And then on top of that, they're able to sort of like PT Barnum it to the way they did it's it's really a pretty compelling package. Yeah, it's it's pop history. And let's go ahead and hear our first song. This is the Fastbacks doing K Street. This is a studio version, not the live version that was played in the movie. This is the Fastbacks K Street. was the fastbacks k street and um you know the fastbacks are are the kind of band that was thriving in seattle but and getting some attention nationally but did not fit into the sub pop image which was very macho very heavy um not really heavy metal although soundgarden i guess was pretty heavy metal and that was one of their first bands and green river too was pretty heavy metal and that was also one of their flagship bands but you know green river breaks up in this split Mark Arm and Steve Turner. And Steve Turner had been originally in Green River, then he quit. And um, they did a couple, an EP and an album without him. He was on their first EP, which was on Homestead Records, actually, before Sub Pop got into it. But then um, Mark Arm quits. He and Steve Turner form Mudhoney, which is on the very first um, 
Sub Pop Single of the Month Club, they did a split single with Sonic Youth. They put out um, Touch Me, I'm Sick, which is a big college radio hit, an underground sensation uh, in the late 80s. Um, and meanwhile, the guys in Green River go on uh, and swipe the singer for Malfunction, Andrew Wood, and form Mother Love Bone, which signs with, I think, Polydor and um, had their own record label, their boutique label, Stardog Records. So it looked like they were kind of on an indie. Meanwhile, Soundgarden moves from um, Sub Pop first to SST and then to A&M. And it's later revealed that they signed with A&M, then put out their record on SST to build underground cachet, which is funny. If they had put it out on Sub Pop, it would have been even more hit. But A&M, you know, wasn't hip to that. Although they did swipe the graphic design style of Sub Pop for Soundgarden's first um, couple of albums. Um, and then Alice in Chains, which kind of came out of the metal scene. They were like a hair band that was living in a rehearsal studio that got hip to the sound and modified their sound enough so that they didn't really fit in with what Sub Pop was doing. But once retroactively, once Nirvana hit big, Alice in Chains had that same sort of Yarl and singing voice, you know, that Chris Cornell had. Lane Staney had similar. They were heavy, um, solid band, but they were they were coming from a different place. And Mother Lovebone was trying very hard to be this metal band. And um, then Andrew Wood ODs right after their first record, their first full album was released, maybe even before it came out. I remember being bummed about that because I really liked their Shine EP. Um, Meanwhile, Screaming Trees is signed with a major. They were on SST for a while, and I can't remember which major label they signed on. But none of them are doing that great. They're all doing okay. Soundgarden was touring with Danzig. Alice in Chains was on the, um, uh, I can't remember what they called it, the tour with Anthrax, Slayer, and Megadeth. Um, you know, Screaming Trees was bubbling under. But really, it's not until Nirvana signs to Geffen after doing one album with Sub Pop and Smells Like Teen Spirit um, gets on MTV, and then it just blows the lid off of it. And then retroactively, Soundgarden and Alice in Chains and then Pearl Jam, which had formed in the wake of Mother Love Bone. It's, it's Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament who had been in Green River and then in Mother Love Bone and then Pearl Jam, you know, had their albums together. And they all kind of really benefited from, from Nirvana having blown the doors up. But... It wasn't just grunge. It was this whole alternative Lollapalooza <coughs> scene that had been coming up big. Um, and then there's a major label feeding frenzy that descends on Seattle. And I thought they did a. Uh, I thought this is when the movie really comes into its own. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of the most interesting parts. It's like, what happens when all eyes turn to your town? Uh, and it's also it's important to remember that this all happened just before the internet. You know, this is all happening on TV, on MTV, on the radio, and in magazines. And this is this is before you know uh, before the internet. So like it's it's like the last big cultural explosion that happens when people don't have they only have access to the to information through these regular channels. Yeah, it's like the last mass media explosion. And it had been bubbling under for a long time. Like Steve Fisk said, um, you know, 
He said Nirvana happening seemed like some kind of weird natural occurrence that got rolling in 1979. Like it's that energy, whatever that energy started as, it ultimately landed with what we've got now. It's not like it's punk rock paying off. It's more like if you push the pimple hard enough and it pops up somewhere else. And, (laughs) And, you know, that's so classic. Like, and I would say track it back to 77 or so. You had the CB, CBGB scene in New York with, you know, the Ramones, Blondie, Talking Heads television. Then the Sex Pistols and the Clash and the Jam and everybody exploded in London. And for a minute, the record industry was like, ah, oh, this is the next big thing. We're going to jump all over it. Then the Sex Pistols implode on their first tour. Sid Vicious, um, you know, kills his girlfriend and ODs and punk gets this huge taint. The major labels don't want anything to do with it. They rebranded as new wave and some groups like talking heads and Blondie and the cars and others can kind of thrive in that Elvis Costello, et cetera. But the punk stuff is pushed literally underground into what's called hardcore. And then there's this whole wave of bands that could have, would have, should have, you know, black flag was playing to arenas full of 3000 people in LA in 81, the bad brains, almost signed with Electra at the same time as Metallica. Um, you know, and, and there's just this, you've got REM getting big. They never really musically aligned with the underground hardcore, but they played the same circuit and they toured their asses off and kind of helped build this national underground circuit. You know, and it's just this wave of bands, each one bigger than the last, but each one kind of getting kneecapped before they get big. And, you know, Jane's Addiction was kind of the last in that they they had laid the groundwork for a really big hit album and broke up right before they could do it. They headlined the Lollapalooza tour in that year of 91 and it was massive, but they didn't put out Smells Like Teen Spirit and Nirvana did. So Nirvana just kind of came along and picked up the grail and retroactively the scene became grunge and it became Seattle and it was these four heavy bands basically. And Nirvana was always kind of the odd man out in that. I don't think they we're really coming from the same place as Soundgarden and Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam, even if those bands are coming from the same place. Well, I agree with that. I mean, those, I don't, I think those all band, all those bands are pretty different from each other. Uh, they all have a, obviously a huge guitar sounds and a huge sort of seventies rock like basis, but you know, Nirvana is much more of a, a pop rock like, you know, there's a there's a, a a pop underline to everything to those songs that, that are, the other bands kind of don't have. Uh, and I think it's one of the things that allowed them to sort of be the, the biggest of all those bands. Yeah, at least initially. And also Cobain with his cardigan sweater and he's really small and, and very slight was the antithesis of Axl Rose. He's very much the opposite of a heavy metal front man and, and pushed that and was very aggressive about that. Whereas, you know, Lane Staley was a heavy metal front man. Chris Cornell was the heavy metal front man, you know, um, and, and with Soundgarden, it was like, they were always sort of ironic and they talk about that. Um, but first I got a cue. This is the U-Men, uh, their song, dig a hole. And the U-Men were kind of the first underground grungy sounding band in Seattle who toured nationally and put out records, but then they broke up uh, and never, never got big, never got known nationally. But here's you, man, dig it a hole. Dig it, baby, dig it, baby, dig it a hole. 
And that was Seattle's U-Man doing Dig It a Hole. Um, yeah, and so, you know, back to this thing of Nirvana being a little bit different. And Nirvana was also sort of self-consciously punkier. Like last week, we talked about um, them on tour with Sonic Youth. That's not something you would really have seen Pearl Jam or Alice in Chains doing, or really even Soundgarden. I mean, Soundgarden, like I said earlier, was touring with Danzig and, you know, uh, there's a woman that's interviewed in this movie, Susan Silver, who was married to Chris Cornell, and she was also the manager of Alice in Chains and at, sort of was involved with Mother Lovebone's management as well, um, kind of introduced Mother Lovebone to the people that ended up managing them. And there was sort of this rivalry for a while. They don't talk about it in the movie, but there were Susan Silver bands, Alice in Chains and Soundgarden in one camp. And then there's the sub pop bands, which was Nirvana initially, Tad and Mudhoney and other camp. And Nirvana signs off with Geffen and, and bails on sub pop. Um, and Mudhoney, and I don't talk about this either, but Mudhoney made a series of deliberate choices that sabotaged their chances of commercial success. I think Steve Turner recognized what was coming and chose not to participate. I remember seeing them in... I want to say 90 in the summer of 1990 at the cannibal club in Austin. And they had just cut their hair and that was, their hair was so central to their image because they had perfected that chin length bob that um, you see several times in this movie. That was sort of the grunge haircut at first. And, you know, that they, they cut that off and that was a big tell. I, I knew right then that they were, stepping off the train and then steve turner you know word comes out that he's going back to college and they're breaking up and they did a number of things like that and stayed with sub pop a lot longer than other bands before eventually signing with capital but from watching this movie it seems like avoiding the fame train was a pretty good call yeah well i mean they they did they took their shot they signed with reprise and put out those records and uh you know, yes, good correction. It was reprise, not capital. And they they uh, they took their they took their major label shot, and they they like they probably didn't maybe uh, do everything they could have to to be massive successes. And then as soon as that thing had run its course, they went back to sub pop and made started making great records right away again uh, in the early two thousands with sub pop. So. Uh, I think that they just, you know, they were just a little more stable of a of a thing, and like the the ups and downs were, they were just able to sort of swing it a little more. Yeah, I mean, Mark Arm struggled with heroin addiction, and I think that hurt the quality of their records. But um, they managed to avoid big fame and the massive microscope that uh, arguably killed Kurt Cobain, and in the end contributed probably to the deaths of Lane Staley and even Chris Cornell decades later. So although it's hard to, I don't know if you can blame that initial rush of fame on what happened to Cornell, but um, anyway, the, the movie does a good, I think a really good job of, of catching the craziness. Like they've got this guy 
uh, who's printing up Seattle band trading cards. And he's got thousands of them. And like, you know, people were moving to Seattle to form bands and try to ride this. And some of them were pretty good. The Gets is one of those bands. They moved to Seattle from Ohio, um, you know, to, to seize this opportunity to get some attention and just be part of a scene. But there were thousands of people doing it. And just band after band after band and seeing all those trading cards with all these bands you've never heard of that are presumably mostly terrible. And, um, you know, and then they've got Megan Jasper from Sub Pop. And she's famous because she's the woman who pranked the New York Times with the ridiculous faux grunge dictionary. But she's she described it as and she's talking, I think, in 1993 when she said this. Right now, Seattle is quarter to six on Christmas Eve when it closes at 6 p.m., and it's too crazy and loaded with submaronic idiots prancing around buying anything they can get their hands on. And that had to have been really horrible for anybody who had been in the scene in Seattle the whole time, if they were still stuck in town, to have to see that and deal with that. And, you know, every time you turn around, Candlebox or somebody is, you know, um, talking about their band. And then people from the New York Times and People Magazine and Rolling Stone and, on and on and on are just feasting on the town you know and and um i don't know it's it's it was very it was one of those things that we wanted to happen or a lot of us did like we wanted this music to get popular we love this music and we thought it would make the world a better place if it became popular then it becomes so popular that it just immediately ruined everything yeah and i thought the 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 scene and I thought it was really great that they got Eddie Vedder and that they got him talking the way he, that they did. And he's all over the place. Like at some, at one point he says some of the wisest shit in the whole thing. And then some of the stuff he says stuff where your just eyes are rolling so far back in your head that you think you're going to have an aneurysm. But when he's talking about these people who are exploiting Seattle and, and he's just talking about how they, they just can't restrain themselves. Like it's, it, it's, it's so right on. It's like once the money people start smelling money, there's no stopping them. They can't restrain themselves. They're gonna get in there and strip mine the whole fucking mountain. They can't stop. Yeah, he, he nails that phenomenon perfectly. And you know he had a front row seat for it. And um yeah, and this just feeding frenzy idea and the and the way that the scene had gone from this small coterie of people who are into it because they loved it and were doing it for fun and they're bright and you know like there's a point when jack and dino talks about nirvana coming out of nowhere coming from aberdeen which is this little town you know 100 miles logging town like 100 miles outside of seattle and kurt cobain calls him one day and it's like hey i'm a friend of the melvins i'd like to come to your studio and record and he's like any friend of the melvins is a friend of mine that's a totally different ethos from what um, you know, Megan Jasper's describing by 1993, where it's just this feeding frenzy, and they show the overcrowded rehearsal band rehearsal complex where, you know, bands were living in those little rooms, and and you know, there's the hip hop band and the rock band, and there's the you know the guy screaming like Bruce Dickinson of of Iron Maiden, and it's just, you know, I can remember being around those people, and those were the same sorts of people that had been in L.A. trying to be the next Guns N' Roses just a couple of years earlier. And Jack and Dino even talks about this phenomenon of, that happened of Seattle musicians who had moved to L.A. trying to make it, 
including Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses, who had been in the farts, I think, within Dino. Um, but most of them didn't make it. They start moving back to Seattle. So it's just this brutal careerism, you know, and they've got the movie does a good job with like interviewing Kim Thale and, and Eddie Vedder and people who were caught in this vortex of being famous. But they also do a good job of talking to other people who knew these guys, people like Leighton Baser of the Throne Ups, um, who's, you know, got this great quote. Celebrity was not what you wanted when you got it. People complaining about celebrity. But what did you expect? You know, <laughs> like and he knew these guys and he knew how hard people like Soundgarden had worked to get where they got. Same deal with Nirvana. I mean, they made a lot of deals with a lot of people and worked really hard to get where they got. So some people kind of felt like it was pretty disingenuous for them to be whining about celebrity. And, and you know, the sub pop guys have that thing, too. Um, you know, people whine about it, but secretly they really like it. Yeah, I, li- I liked that guy a lot. Uh, but I think it's. And it's just one of the things in the movie that, that they just talked to a lot of the right people, even I have no idea who this guy is. He was just a guy who was there in a band, but like. He kind of has uh, his finger on the pulse because he was there, and so they talked to him, and it really adds to the film. Uh, but I do think when it comes to like great celebrity, like you can work really hard for it, and unless it happens to you, you can't you can't say, "Oh, being famous isn't so bad." Oh, being on the covers of these magazines isn't so bad. Oh you know, buck up, buttercup. Like, you can't, until you walk a mile in that guy's shoes, you don't know. And so all these people who say, well, I, I got no time for complaints for people who got famous. It's like, well, they, yes, they did it on purpose. And yes, they worked really hard. But it wasn't what they expected. And it was awful. And it's okay for them to have that experience and to communicate about it. Absolutely. And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. When we come back, we'll continue to talk about the fallout from the massive success of Grunge. And so, yeah, it's it's absolutely, I think you're absolutely right, that this is this searing experience that most people never have and does not sound like something you want to have. I mean, there's some people, maybe Madonna is happy in this environment or Mick Jagger, but most people are more like Kurt Cobain or Brian Jones who can't handle it do not it's not a natural state for everywhere you go everybody knows you and you don't know anybody and you're constantly a target of attention and you don't know who to trust everybody wants something from you everybody's treating you you know like the your best friend and uh you know very unsettling experience so kim thale has this great like line in there he's he's sort of riffing on the nature of of you know what he was into his music and and he enjoyed that part and he was into playing live and he, he wanted people to enjoy their shows he wanted people to buy his records but then this gossip and celebrity culture thing comes along and he realizes he's a part of it and then he's like you know if you could just take the money and not the fame <laughs> You you could it would, it would be a lot easier. And then they've got Eddie Vedder going, you know, doing this riff on, you know, when you hear a, a great song a million times, then you just get sick of it and you just keep seeing that guy's face and you just want to kill that motherfucker. I don't blame him. I feel the same way. You know, that was 
that was one of Eddie's um, sweetest quotes. And then they're talking to kids, you know, they talk to these great kids, like the kid that has the two um, earplugs stuck in his nose, you know, and, and he's just boils it down to, he's making fun of the sort of the stereotypical Pearl Jam fan with the flannel shirt wrap, wrapped around the waist and the combat boots. And he's like, it pisses me off. I liked them first. And that's kind of, kind of the whole tale. I mean, this is, everybody wants their playground to themselves and their friends. They want it to be a big playground and a fun playground, but then when it gets overrun, nobody likes that. Yeah. Talk to anybody who's moved to Austin in 1990 something and now is upset because everybody else moved here too. Exactly. And that's been going on, you know, as long as I've been in Austin. I, I remember vividly the first cup. I wasn't even here yet. It was 86 and I was at Liberty Lunch as a high school junior looking at going to college here. And um, and people were in Liberty Lunch complaining about how the whole town had been ruined, you know. And, and I think it was uh, Poison 13 that was playing, which was the big boys, some of the band featuring two members of the big boys. And people were like, oh, the big boys are so much better. And I already felt like I had missed the town, you know. And that's just sort of the, the nature of it. Um, but the movie takes a pretty grim turn in, in the end. I mean, in the last third of it. And it's already been it's already had this narrative arc of, of, you know, right in the middle is when, when teen spirit explodes and then the hype and the feeding frenzy and the chaos, but then it gets even more serious. And they start talking about the nature of celebrity and what a bummer it is. And Jack and Dino has this line, like you start wondering if success is a good thing because it makes people psycho. And that's, very different than saying oh this makes me uncomfortable or it wasn't pleasant makes people psycho and then you know that that's when they start talking about the heroin and the suicides and and you know the rest of the heaviness that 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 came with it and it's still hard i you know like the the thing with i interviewed a guy who adam caress who wrote a book about how the music industry capitalized on the death of Kurt Cobain. And that before his argument is that before Cobain's death, there had been this pop success of Nirvana and all these other bands. And the record industry didn't know what to do with that. They, they, they were just signing everybody and throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. And they had gone from a period in the 80s when they very much knew exactly what had a chance of succeeding and thought that they knew exactly what never had a chance of succeeding. And hardcore punk was one of those things that they had declared this stuff is never going to be successful. But once, you know, Nirvana breaks through so big and all these other bands, there's this period of a couple years when it's not just Nirvana and Soundgarden and, and Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains, it's also presidents of the USA. Remember that song Peaches? And, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, just all these, just a wide variety of all kinds of bands. Um, Hole and, and, you know, L7 was around and, there, you know, there's these girl groups and, and, and all this stuff. But after Cobain died, boom. That's the formula. We want clones of Kurt Cobain. And suddenly you've got Bush and you've got Candlebox and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's very true to what it was like to watch it happen. I mean, it, it really took the wind out of everybody's sails. But what they don't cover in this movie or anywhere else 
is Cobain struggles with fame. Like Smells Like Teen Spirit was this massive hit. There's multiple massive hits that come off of Nevermind after that. But then for Cobain, there's this whole backlash, you know, of of him and Courtney Love getting on heroin, the Vanity Fair story that resulted in Francis Bean being taken away from him for a while. Um, all the controversy about him wanting to use Steve Albini to produce his second, uh, you know, second major label album um, in utero, having it remixed by somebody. Who, I think it was, was it Butch Vig that remixed in utero? Can't remember. If it was. I believe so. Yeah. Andy Wallace had remixed um, Nevermind. But, you know, so and meanwhile, Eddie Vedder is just going from success to success to success to success. And by the time Cobain died, Pearl Jam was bigger than Nirvana. And Soundgarden was rapidly catching up. Allison in Chains was rapidly catching up. And there was an element to me of Cobain's suicide as obviously a suicide driven by personal demons and immense suffering on his part. But there was also an element to it, to me, of calculation and kind of a checkmate and a, I'm going to be the rock and roll legend, guys. Sorry, I win. Is that a horrible wow. thing to say? It is totally a horrible thing to say. Uh, <laughs> like, I mean, I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around it. I, I don't know. I have a hard time crediting that. Uh, I mean, I, I see where you're coming from with it. And it certainly worked out that way. Uh, but I do think that the guy was suffering. And I think that the more sensitive you are as a person and as an artist, the harder that the grind of and the machine of the entertainment business is gonna be for you. And, you know, I think two important things to remember about heroin too, are that one, like rock stars have been like becoming rock stars and then getting strung out on heroin since the get go. It's pretty much like one of the most trite things that happens. And it's partly to do with the lifestyle of being a touring, uh, rock and roll person fucking sucks like you're spending all this time just traveling around and being nowhere and doing nothing and like there's there's for a sensitive person it's it's real easy to get caught up into like oblivion drugs and then seattle itself is a heroin town right it's a port city every port city is a heroin town and the sun comes out fucking 10 days a year like it's the place to get strung out on heroin so like there's a lot there's a lot of reasons why people especially you know a rock star out of seattle is going to end up strung out on heroin no doubt about that and let's hear our next song this is um a bit that they had footage in the movie i think this is the first time this footage was seen this was the debut live performance of smells like teen spirit from april of 1991 uh, several months before it comes out as a hit. This is Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit, live April 1991.
that was Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit, the debut public performance, uh, April 1991, I think shortly after it was written. Um, it might not have even been recorded at that point. And yeah, I get your point about heroin completely. It's definitely something uh, in the water, as it were, in Seattle. It's also, one thing about the Rockstar Lifestyle you didn't mention is that it's long stretches of tedium as you travel and you're trapped with the same people all the time and you're in a bus or a plane. But then it's these moments of just incredible energy when you're playing. I mean, um, you know, I've been in bands that packed a club and that's a really high point experience. I mean, the first time I ever did that, I was walking on air for weeks. It's an incredible experience. I can't even imagine what it's like to play a whole stadiums of people, especially when you've got a song like Smells Like Teen Spirit that really did capture the zeitgeist. And, you know, I remember the first time I heard that coming out of a jam box playing softball, um, intramural softball on a Wednesday night. I immediately was riveted by it. I was already a fan, but I hadn't gotten the album yet. I think somebody had an advanced copy of it. That song just really captured the moment, and the video was even more powerful. So, um, I, you know, I can't imagine what that was like for Cobain to have that kind of energy feeding through you, and then no real way to ground yourself and 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 come down. So, yeah, heroin's a very alluring drug for musicians, whether it's Keith Richards, going all the way back to at least Charlie Parker, hell, Bix Beiderbeck in the twenties. Um, really, since musicians, by definition, are sensitive people, and you know, need something to numb themselves. And, and, you know, that was definitely uh, something that hit Cobain. But the thing with Cobain, you know, they published most of his diaries and, and he mapped out the rise of Nirvana point by point in his diaries years in advance. And he also outlined his dream. His dream was to make enough money so that he could have an $800 a day heroin habit and never leave the house which, you know, be careful what you wish for because you might get it. And that's pretty much exactly what happened to Lane Staley, who later on, um, I think it was the early 2000s when he finally died, I believe nobody found his body for like seven days. And the only reason they did was that his money people were watching his ATM withdrawals. And when the daily $400 withdrawal stopped happening, they knew there was a problem and finally sent somebody to go check on him. I mean... That's a terrible fate, um, you know, especially for somebody who's bright and beautiful and talented and outgoing and, and has something to say to the world. And then at the end of their journey is so spent and exhausted and paranoid that they want to just, you know, snuff themselves essentially with this narcotic. So, yeah, it's it's. um that was heavy stuff. I don't know. Do you remember where you were when you found out Cobain had died? Yeah, I was sitting on the back porch uh, at that shared house here in Austin, and I was with my best friend, and we were just hanging out. Uh, we were probably pretty wasted, and my roommate came out who was a little older and was making some kind of jokey remarks about it, and we didn't know, and we inferred from his jokes what was going on, we immediately like looked at each other and like ran inside and like tried to figure out what the fuck was going on. Uh, and we were really distressed. It was, it was, uh, it was super uncool. Yeah, it was very upsetting. I was pushing a mail cart at the Texas state historical association. My friend Heidi, who was a receptionist, um, somebody had called her and told her and yeah, it, it, it was a, just a massive, a massive drag. I mean, it, it, 
it's all predestined now. And in retrospect, it seems like it was inevitable, but it was not inevitable. And it was a total surprise to a lot. Even, and I had known that Cobain had been in trouble. I knew he'd been in rehab um, and had, had a suicide attempt slash overdose that Christmas, I think, or, or that winter in Italy. And so, you know, I, people were worried about Cobain and, and it had trickled out into the broader world, but it was still just such a note of finality when when he when he did die uh, you know it was it was brutal stuff and but back to the movie this guy art chantry who's um chopping up the the priceless flyers or the valuable flyers on this uh cutting board he has some great quotes too like he he two quotes i want to bring out one of which was talking about how it was really cool for this pop cultural explosion to happen because of the way it put the sort of yuppies of Seattle and the city fathers who are very stodgy and very conservative. That's the other thing about Seattle is it's like one of these Puritan towns. Like it's, it's culturally very related to Minneapolis or St. Paul or Boston. Um, those Puritans that, that settled the Northern part of the U S very, you know, closed off socially people who can trace their families back to the founding of Seattle and from there back to the Mayflower, et cetera. And it's very closed off and very stodgy and very uptight. And so he really enjoyed kind of overthrowing that regime or bypassing that regime or surpassing that regime. But then at the end, he's got this other quote. He's like, you know, to be this close to a pop culture explosion has been really fascinating. And you can suddenly understand what it was like to be in San Francisco in 1967 or London in Mercy Beat or thereafter or 1977. And you can see up close how ridiculous it is. And, you know, it's the same thing if you read, especially San Francisco, that's where Hate Ashbury became this magnet for runaway kids from all over the country which are then feasted on by the Hell's Angels and Charles Manson, et cetera, et cetera. The Seattle scene doesn't quite have that horrible an underbelly, but it does have a pretty awful underbelly. And that's where Mia Zapata comes in and the Gits. You know, the Gits were this um, uh, female-fronted band, but the, the rest of the members were dudes. But I, I wouldn't call them Riot Girl, but they were sort of Riot Girl adjacent. They were more hardcore punk than grunge. But really talented. Mia Sabata, to me, was like, I thought she was the second coming of Penelope Houston. I, I had gotten a hold of a cassette tape of their first demos, I think, before the album came out. We were really excited by that. And then the next thing we hear was that she'd been kidnapped and raped and murdered and found dead. And, you know, they, they show her playing live in the movie, but they don't talk about that. But as soon as I saw her, it was just sort of overwhelming. And like when you read... Um, you know, Mark Yarm's book, Everybody Loves Our Town, The Oral History of Grunge. That is just a real kick in the teeth. And the overall theme of that book is just endless bummers from the death of Andrew Wood in 1990, all the way through the deaths of Cobain and, and Zapata, and then on beyond to the death of Lane Staley. And that was before Chris Cornell passed away just a couple of years ago, which to me was that was absolutely the last nail in the coffin. I mean, is it irrational to blame grunge for a 50-something-year-old man or late 40-year-old man suffering from depression and killing himself despite his fame and fortune, or is it unrelated? I Well, it can't be unrelated, right? Like, the guy lived the life that he lived. Uh, so there's no way it's unrelated, but I think I'm sure that it's complicated. 
Yeah, yeah, it is. And let's go ahead and hear the gets. This is Second Skin. This is from the album take, not the live take that was shown in the movie. This is the gets featuring me as a pot of Second Skin. was the gets the late great Mia Zapata second skin and yeah that was just a totally tragic tale where she was out having some drinks with some friends and then hanging out at their apartment until about 2 a.m went to walk a few blocks home never made it her body's found the next day um she'd obviously been attacked and and, and raped and the police had no clues and started investigating all her friends and, you know, and it's never a good thing for an underground scene to have the cops sniffing around and, and being suspicious. And there was a lot of suspicion. People were suspecting each other and nobody knew what to think. And it was literally decades later that DNA testing finally uh, caught up with the creep who had done that. And just a, you know, typical rapist murderer asshole. I think he was part of the um, wave of. Uh, when Fidel Castro emptied the prisons of Cuba and the Marianas boatlift, I can't remember what the boatlift was called. It's not the Marianas boatlift, but but there was a big boatlift where Castro sent literally the scum of Cuba's prisons over to America. And, and Mia Zapata is one of many people who were victimized um, by those criminals that Fidel sent our way. And of course, the U.S. has done the same thing. A lot of the troubles in Honduras and El Salvador the last few years have begun as of us exporting people that were trained and hardened in our prisons down south. So what comes around goes around. But anyway, it it came around on me as a pata in a really horrible way that um I don't know. It's it's very hard for me to take any very much joy in the grunge scene because of all the death and sadness and disillusion that came in its wake. Yeah, I mean the human toll is really high. Uh And it's it's so complicated because it's also mixed up together with everything else. With that time in, in my life, with uh, with alternative as a greater subset of of what grunge was, and it's it's really hard to pin down, you know, how I feel about it. Yeah, it's it's complicated. I'm still, you know, when I go back, I, I can still enjoy a lot of this music. Um, some of it I, I still can't. Um, and I can appreciate the craft of the PR that the sub pop guys put into it and what they did. But it got way out of their control and got way out of anybody's control. And there's a real qualitative difference in cultural history between the way pop culture operated in the 60s and the way it operated in the 90s and the way it operates now. I think that because the grunge scene happened before the internet, when it was still MTV, one channel that was the dominant musical artery to the American public throughout the 80s and 90s, nothing like that exists anymore. Um, the 
Time magazine and Newsweek, like that montage when Kurt Cobain's on the cover of every magazine, first in triumph and then in tragedy, there's nothing comparable to that now. Nobody gives a shit about magazines. But at the time, Time magazine, everybody's mom had Time or Newsweek. Every dentist's office had Time or Newsweek. Everybody saw that stuff. And so the 90s were kind of this peak era for mass media. And cable news was just running completely unhinged. I mean, they could, they had already had multiple moral panics, you know, child molesting, satanic nursery schools, the crack epidemic, um, you know, the crime waves. And there was some reality to that, but they could blow this stuff up and twist it. You know, they got everybody on board for the uh, first George Bush's uh, invasion of Iraq. And then, you know, and not shortly thereafter, they would do it again for the second George Bush and his invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. And it's hard, I think, from the perspective of 2021 to grasp how powerful the, and how one way the media was, um, even though these underground scenes had worked so hard to develop these networks of alternative media. It was fanzines and it was distributed in the mail and by photocopiers and you know, it was cassette compilations and it was vinyl singles and, um, you know, independently released CDs. And, you know, they, they've got people like Megan Jasper talking about, I, th I think it's Megan Jasper, it's one of the rock critics and I didn't catch her name, um, who's talking about, you know, it's really weird to be in the middle of a scene and then read about it in People magazine and they get every single detail wrong. And at the time, there was no recourse whatsoever. Now things are a little bit more even because of the Internet. But in the 90s, it was still very much sort of a children's crusade to kind of try to take on the mass media. And Sub Pop and Nirvana and everybody kind of pulled a trick on the media and conquered the world only to discover that they couldn't control what happened. And, you know, a lot of people paid a really heavy price for that. Yeah. And the, but a lot of people, I think Sub Pop itself actually has done great. You know, they, they're yeah. still, they're still operational today. They're still putting out records today that are important. Uh, they've done a good job of keeping a lot of their classic stuff in print. Uh, you know, they're, they're like a legitimate record label in every respect. And I have a lot of, uh, of respect for them. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it was very nip and tuck. They almost went bankrupt multiple times. And it was only because Kurt Cobain like banged on somebody's window in the middle of the night and insisted on signing a contract with them because most of their deals were handshake deals. And they talk about this in the movie where people are bitter because their friends who have bands sign up to their record company and then and then sign up with a major and forget all about the deals they had. That didn't happen to Sub Pop. They had contracts. And when Nevermind got massive and when Bleach was moved over to Geffen, Sub Pop got money on every sale. And that financed their continued um, ability to continue running a boutique label. And yeah, they have done a really brilliant job. And so, yeah, I think I think some people have kept the focus on being creative and and bands like the young fresh fellows and fastbacks and posies i think did a pretty good job of capitalizing on the opportunities that they had without getting too big you know they kept kept control of it and i, I don't know the story of the posies that well they, they probably got closer to the fire than others but you know some people managed to thread the needle and get through this without being crushed by the machine but it sure, was very bands, much yeah go ahead like bands like mud honey and the melvins 
have just continued to this day, you know, three working bands making solid a solid living. You know, they probably had day jobs and off years and that kind of thing. But, you know, they're still making good records. They're still making music that they're interested in making, you know, and we're still here talking about them. Yeah. And they still have audiences that play them. And, and you know, Buzz Osborne will be the first to tell you, you know, Kurt Cobain, who was the kid who carried his guitar around, you know, Cobain picked that management. He picked that record company. He picked that road crew. He picked all the worst people in the business <laughs> to surround himself with. And, um, you know, maybe that's fair or unfair, but, you know, uh, it gets back to the whole thing. Well, anyway, that's our discussion of Hype, the 1996 film by Doug Prey, which I think is excellent. I think if you're interested in uh, rock and roll at all, it's, it's a must-see. It definitely tells the story of of seattle i think better than any other film it's a terrific movie and like i said it's amazing that it came out in 1996 because when you watch it it feels like the movie could have been made last year uh because it's just it's still so correct about everything uh but the fact that it was made in 1996 right on the heels of 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 all these events mean that that They've got the actual, they've got the correct people to talk to. The people still remember everything. Uh, it's just, it's a phenomenal film. Absolutely. And it's been a treat talking about it with you, Justin. And when we come back next week, we'll talk about another favorite film of yours, Les Blanks, Chulas Fronteras, which is totally a great palate cleanser because it is absolutely the opposite of this movie. There is no overwhelming fame, no death <laughs> and destruction, just beautiful people making great music. So I'm really looking forward to talking about that one with you next time. Indeed. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Justin will return to discuss the classic Les Blank documentary, Chulas Fronteras, a beautiful film about the Conjunto and Tejano scene on the Texas-Mexican border. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. <laughs>